Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. As you open up to Genesis chapter 3, ready or not, it's that time of year again. And I'm not talking about Christmas. If you were paying attention at the beginning of the service, we still have 29 days until Christmas. 29 days. What I'm talking about is the season of Advent. And Advent, I didn't say this earlier, Advent's a Latin word. It actually means a coming or an arrival. And Advent is not something you'll find in your Bibles. It's a season of time that was marked out long ago by some of the earliest generations of Christians. And it was marked out in order to slow down and reflect not on what we have to do to make Christmas happen, as that creed so beautifully reflected, but rather on the God who, in coming down in the flesh, gives us our reason for celebrating at all. So, instead of being consumed by the commercial blitz, instead of finding ourselves lost, thanks to the holiday rush, we're going to be intentional over these next few four Sundays about coming home for Christmas coming back to why we need more than just a little Christmas, all respect to the song. Why we need the whole of Christmas, the whole of what Christmas is, past, present, and future. We need the whole of Christmas to shape and form not just how we live in the month of December, but every day of our lives. Now, it's never a good idea to start in the middle of something. I imagine you would agree. When we come in in the middle of anything, A story, a song, a conversation, an explanation, an argument. If we come in the middle of something, we're liable to end up confused and a little frustrated as we struggle to make sense of what's going on and why. And yet, despite this fact that it's never a good idea to come into the middle of something, despite this fact, each and every year, we try and share the message and meaning of Christmas by starting from the middle of the story. We start in the middle of the story of a young, unmarried couple finding themselves pregnant by mysterious divine intervention who then, amid scandal, nine months later shuffle off to Bethlehem and end up having their baby in less than ideal circumstances. And in the aftermath of the birth of this heaven-sent child, this couple is then spontaneously visited, first by a couple of shepherds, then later by a bunch of wise guys, counselors from foreign lands, And all this takes place under the illumination of a majestic star rising in the east, the fanfare of a chorus of heavenly hosts of angels who also appear in the night sky. All this against the backdrop of the murderous rage of a local king named Herod. All that makes sense to everybody? Everyone keeping up? We all know the trajectory of the story, but is it clear to the people we share it with and the people who know that trajectory how we got here and what it all means? It doesn't. It's not self-explanatory. We have been raised in it, and raised in it, we're like, well, of course it's obvious. No, it's not. It's not obvious at all. To understand the full story of Christmas, we can't come in in the middle. We have to go back to the beginning. To truly appreciate the gift of love that is a baby named Jesus, born in a manger to Mary and Joseph, we have to revisit the moment God's heart for the world for all that he had created for us first broke in a garden with Adam and Eve. Bible's open to Genesis chapter 3. I invite you to follow along in your Bible or with the words on the screen. Now, 
The serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you gave here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and well, I ate it. And Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you. Above all livestock and all wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, Christmas. Christmas is a time of year that's marked by a spirit of generosity and charity. Expressing gratitude to those we love, offering service to those who are in need. Christmas is a season when we make peace, right? When we put aside our differences and extend goodwill to each other as we seek to come home and be unified in together making life merry and bright. Christmas is an occasion when we become more childlike, no matter how old we are, more childlike in our sense of imagination and possibility, when we encourage belief and hope in the promise of a better world. But what's interesting to me, and I don't know if it's ever occurred to us, is this very mindset I've just referred to, all these dispositions and actions that make Christmas special, stand out, imply that this way of thinking, of feeling, of speaking and acting are not the norm. To put this another way, there would be no need for Christmas if empathy and compassion were our default postures rather than self-protectiveness and indifference. There would be no need for the generosity and charity Christmas invokes if justice was the rule, rather than the exception. If shared and shared alike were the rule, rather than hoarding the abundance, the resources, the opportunities of creation which we have been given. There would be no need to appeal for unity or dreams of peace at Christmas time if we actually lived as though what divides us is not greater than all we have in kind, our common humanity. There would be no need 
to come home for Christmas, if even as we travel far and wide in our work and our play, even as we travel far and wide in our work and our play, we didn't forget where we came from, to whom we belong, that we don't exist apart from each other, but in fact, we're all in this together. But the fact is, as you well know and I do, we do need Christmas. We need Christmas badly. The larger question again is why? Why? Why are all the things we celebrate at Christmas, peace on earth and goodwill to all, tidings of comfort and joy, the world ruled by grace and truth, the wonders of pure, unbounded love, why are these not the norm in our lives, in this world? And the answer to that question, the why, if you will, of Christmas, can only be found if we remember the nightmare before Christmas. The nightmare before Christmas takes place only three chapters into the story of creation, as we heard, into three chapters into the genesis of our humanity. And it bears mentioning, before we go any further, that this is a nightmare of humanity's own making. I mean, if you think about it, the third chapter of the start of the human condition could have been much different. It could have been much different if our oldest ancestors hadn't grabbed the pen from our Creator's hand and started to try to write a different story for their lives. I mean, after all, go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Before you get to 3, the narrative yet to be offered, what was about to come in Genesis chapter 3, the journey ahead that God planned for us was within our reach to take hold of. The tree of life offered the promise of more than paradise on earth. The tree of life ensured our existence despite the pangs and stumbles of learning and growth. The tree of life assured us that despite all of that, our existence would be eternal, uninterrupted, everlasting. And beyond the garden in which our lives started lay a more extraordinary creation, a world of discovery and creative potential, unmarred, unmarred by any harshness in nature, or fear of disaster. And in all our explorations, in all our inspirations and revelations to come, our Creator's presence would not be relegated to some abstract theological doctrine of omnipresence. God would be Emmanuel, inseparably with and for us, walking ahead of us every step of the way. But God's dream for humanity turned into the nightmare before Christmas, The moment in our disobedience, we attempted to write a different story. Now, there are those who will tell us, some will strongly argue, that Genesis chapter 3 is the assertion of humanity's freedom of choice. To believe this, to believe this, however, is to take the bait like Adam and Eve. To give in to the biggest temptation, the biggest lie of all, that life apart from God is freedom, when in fact it is slavery. Humanity's freedom of choice exists before what happens here in chapter 3. Our freedom to choose is God-given, not taken by us from God. Our Creator gives us tremendous freedom. The freedom to represent his character through our stewardship of creation. All creation. The freedom to reflect God's beauty and wonder and majesty through our creativity. How we cultivate and fabricate 
the building blocks of creation. The only boundary to freedom that God gives us is we have to represent our creator naturally within the order and structure of what he has created, of how he has created us. God's house, God's rules. And this boundary is not arbitrary. It's designed to protect us from the inevitable breakdown and chaos that result when we operate outside the structure and design of what the Lord has made. And even within this boundary, even within it, God gives us the choice to depend on him or not. God provides the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as a reminder of the limitation of our moral choices. The limitation of our moral choices. And this is a good thing because we, as we know on the other side of things, as we well know now on the other side of the nightmare before Christmas, the nuances and shades of gray between both good intentions and bad consequences and bad intentions and good outcomes is hard for us to unravel. Looking to God as our provider and sustainer is what we were created for. Not playing God. Playing God, which always carries a terrible burden and extracts a costly price. And yet, this is what our first spiritual ancestors did. This, playing God, is what we continue to do as we champion our independence, our autonomy, our self-sufficiency. This is how the nightmare begins as we deny the image of God in whom we are created and instead assert consciously or unconsciously that we can become gods in our own right. This is how the nightmare evolves. As we keep believing the lie that we can make something of ourselves apart from God and we try to craft our identity apart from our relationship to our creator. As we bow down and worship our productivity and achievements. As we rush forward and keep chasing after the kind of fulfillment and contentment that will always elude us. When we refuse to wait patiently on the Lord. Divorcing ourselves from God we ruin our humanity beyond recognition in some ways. We begin to dig our own grave as everything falls apart. An empty, divine handprint, a God-shaped hole in our lives leaves us conscious of our nakedness and our exposure, not knowing who we are, not knowing what the meaning of life is, not knowing why we're here. We hide, even as we search for our identity, our purpose, our destiny. Feeling exposed, disconnected, insecure, we fluctuate. We fluctuate all the time between puffing ourselves up with false pride and being overwhelmed by the guilt and shame of being imposters. And our self-imposed distance from our Creator also keeps us at arm's length from each other, doesn't it? As we compare, as we contrast, as we compete with one another, all to prove our worth, all to justify our significance, all to try and be somebody. And we end up no different than Adam and Eve. We do, right? You remember the rest of this story? We end up no different than Adam and Eve, as rather than take responsibility for each other, we turn on each other and point fingers. We play the blame game, even as we pass the buck. 
If I'm not responsible for anything, then you are responsible for everything. It's always somebody else's fault, right? It's always somebody else's fault as we blame the devil. Devil made me do it. We blame the weather. We blame the government. Democrats. Republicans. As we blame the media. As we blame our kids. Kids. As we blame our parents. As we blame our boss. As we blame anything or anyone who is within our reach. We even take our lack of responsibility out on creation itself as we toss all our junk and bury, bury all our trash wherever we feel like it, as we consume and use for sport animal and plant life, as we turn the planet into a disposable resource instead of a renewable one. Except creation, you'll notice, doesn't like being scorned and doesn't take being scorned lying down. We see it start here in Genesis 3, and we're experiencing it, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, continuing in our world. What was once heaven on earth becomes more like hell as the once peaceful, predictable rhythms of a balanced universe become uncertain, violent, and sometimes deadly. Why did that natural disaster happen? Why did that take place? Why is it so hot in here? Why is the air una we are, un are unable to breathe? Why? Because the fruitfulness of the land, the sky, and the sea have become harder to come by, increasingly resistant to our sweat and our toil. It says it right here. It offers us instead, in response to our brokenness, and in response to what we've done to this world, it offers us thorns and thistles to work around, and at times, and even for long stretches, as we work and we toil, creation harvests nothing but drought and famine. One of the ironies of our great divorce from our Creator is that we as humanity end up needing creation more than it needs us. We no longer rule over creation. That was Genesis chapter 2. Come to Genesis chapter 3. Make no mistake, creation rules over us with a vengeance. The brokenness of our lives. The brokenness of this world. It's not a bad dream, everybody. It's not a bad dream. It's a living nightmare. It's a living nightmare that we can't wake ourselves up from. And all in all, it's not a pretty picture, is it? Nightmares rarely are. And I know that you did not come today expecting a sermon on this as we get ready for Christmas. And that's reflective of a reality that's true not just at Christmas, but most of the time, is that we choose to live in denial of this nightmare. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. We rationalize it. We justify it. We say it's not so bad. We say, well, we settle. But here's the thing. We have to face and not look away from the darkness. The darkness out there, but also the darkness in here. We have to face and not look away from the darkness in order to appreciate the light that breaks in. The light of our salvation. Now, as I said at the start of this sermon, most people don't see that light begin to emerge until thousands of years later with the surprise announcement of an angel to a young girl, unwed girl named Mary. But more careful, attentive observers, however, will notice that the first glimmer of hope, the beginning of the end of the nightmare, the dawn of the light that is Christmas, appears here 
at the very scene of the crime. Now, we may not recognize it because, let's be honest, the initial trauma of the nightmare before Christmas can cause us, like all trauma does, it can cause us to misremember what happened next. And we have misremembered what happens next. And we have, unfortunately, passed down through subsequent generations, like a game of telephone, a less gracious view of how our Creator responds. Which is ironic in and of itself, because in, in the aftermath of our disobedience, as I'm about to show you, grace is exactly what God extends to us. For example, the standard generic retelling of Genesis chapter 3, go up to any person on the street, and if they believe in this story, if they're familiar with it, ask them what happened. The standard generic retelling of Genesis 3 is the portrayal of an outraged creator who angrily spews curses on humanity and subsequently cast them out, humankind, out of his presence. But, in the story as written, nothing could be further from the truth. Because the first move our Creator makes on the other side of the nightmare is to search for us. To search for us, rather than to grab us by the scruff of our neck and drag us into his presence. The first move that our Creator makes is to call us out. Call us out, not with castigation, laying into us for being so ungrateful and foolish, but to call us out with questions. Where are you? What have you done? And to appreciate the graciousness of this first move, let's be clear. God doesn't search for Adam and Eve because God cannot find them. God does not ask questions of Adam and Eve because God needs information and doesn't know what just happened. No, the first move of our Creator, always in response to our disobedience, is to allow space to cultivate an opportunity for our repentance, for turning ourselves around, for stop, to stop running away and hiding, and instead to come home and get clean. And as Adam and Eve come forward, in the first sacrifice, by the way, we witness in Scripture, through the skins of animals, God fully clothes them, providing for them rather than punishing them in their guilt and shame. And likewise, God does not leave us, God does not leave our humanity exposed. He doesn't leave us alone, naked and afraid, but God continually clothes us, wrapping his grace around us. And our Creator's second move here is no less gracious. Because contrary to popular opinion, and this is a big one, contrary to popular opinion, while there are consequences certainly spelled out, such as the pain of childbirth, the toil and sweat of labor, instead of mutuality between the sexes, there is rivalry. And ultimately, of course, the ultimate consequence, the sting of death, despite the fact that consequences are indeed spelled out, consequences for Adam and Eve's disobedience, cursing humankind is not one of those consequences. The land, the sea, and the sky become cursed. They become adversely affected. And God makes it clear they become adversely affected not as some arbitrary punishment by God against his own creation. I'm mad at them, so I'll take it out on you. No, the Lord declares creation is cursed as an inevitable repercussion of our brokenness, of our willful separation from our Creator. So again, in this animus between us and creation, it's because creation's like, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. The only thing that's cursed, 
not as a consequence of our disobedience, but as an act of judgment and condemnation, is the serpent. The serpent, the snake, that more broadly represents the force of evil. All the principalities and powers opposed to God that would seek to further corrupt our humanity, to mar our creation further, are in this moment, right at the outset, doomed to destruction. And surprisingly, it's here in the cursing of evil that the first ray of hope that becomes Christmas appears. In God's promise, did you hear it? It was the last verse we read. In God's promise of a future descendant of Eve who will deliver the final crushing death blow to all that is malevolent and wrong, to all that is corrupt and unjust, to all that is abusive and oppressive. Don't miss this. Our Creator's intention from the earliest pronouncement is to bring about our redemption not through an angel, not through a demigod, but through our humanity, through a human being born like any other person, a human being who would grow in wisdom and stature before God, a human being who would, like any of us, die, being struck in the heel, and yet somehow, in dying, crushing evil's head, death's very grip. So we see the first mention of Christmas is found not in a manger, but a garden. As our creator right here begins to rewrite the story of our nightmare. Planting the seed, laying the foundation for bringing life out of death. Beloved, God's response to Adam and Eve, in case you missed it, is not a litany of things they must do in order to get back in his good graces. Our Creator's response to our rebellion and rejection of Him and the nightmare that follows is not to demand that we prove ourselves worthy, worthy of being saved, or save yourselves. No. The Lord's pledge, God's covenant, is to outline how He is going to save us, of what He is going to accomplish for us undoing sin, evil, and death. And this is my favorite part. A small, often overlooked, but significant detail, and if you don't have your Bibles open, you're going to want to go back to this, a small, often overlooked, but significant detail in this moment is Adam's recognition and trust in this promise by God that I'm pointing to. Because notice... Notice, it is in the aftermath of everything falling apart. It is on the other side when God has given his words to reconcile all things. It's then that Adam finally names his bride. Go look. She's just the woman. But Adam finally names his bride, and what does he call her? He calls her, verse 20, by the way, if you're looking for it in chapter 3. Verse 20, he calls her Eve. Why? Because she would become the mother of not of the dead, but of the living. Not of the dead, but of the living. Now, we have to go beyond Genesis chapter 3, of course, and out of the mystery of God's assurance, generations upon generations waited and wondered exactly who this promised Savior would be. 
And if you haven't gone through it in a while, peppered throughout the stories that follow in the Old Testament, peppered throughout them are genealogies. You know those parts you skip over. Those parts we skip over, we gloss over the genealogies. And what's crazy is we skip over them, but those genealogies represent the painstaking efforts of those who recorded biblical history to demonstrate that many of the most important figures in the stories we read, the stories they wrote down, were descendants of the first family begun by God here in the garden. And what hangs over each of these narratives is the repeated question of whether or not this person is the one who was promised to save the world. Is it Abraham? Is it Joseph? Is it Moses? Is it Joshua? Is it Samson? Is it Samuel? Is it David? Is it Solomon? Is it any of the kings of Israel or Judah? With each turning of the page of biblical history, there's this constant looking to leaders to judges, to priests, to sages, to kings, in some hope they can prove themselves better than the previous one, that they would reveal themselves to be the one to crush the head of the serpent, to kill the beast inside of us. And yet, if you know your Bible, if you know your Old Testament, despite the encouraging start of many of these perceived candidates, it always ends in greater disappointment and further waiting. And as the Old Testament concludes with life as we know it actually appearing to get worse rather than better, God raises up these venerable prophets that we invoked in our reading this morning for the Advent wreath. Venerable prophets to keep hope alive. Prophets like Isaiah who expand the vision of this child, the Savior still to come, the one who will come, who will be called and known as the Messiah. And in the expanding vision of what this one will come to accomplish is more than just the crushing of the head of the serpent, conquering evil, but this picture, this immense picture of restoring shalom, of remaking all creation, including us. And as this picture gets bigger, as this promise gets bigger, one can't help but be left with a growing sense that the scope of God's promise exceeds the capacity of any single human being we have known then brings us to the Gospels, as we discover that the long-awaited answer to God's promise resides not, surprise, surprise, it resides not in the might of human strength or wisdom, not in the splendor of worldly riches or wealth, but the long-awaited answer to God's promise, as it was in the beginning, lies in the power of the Spirit and the glory of simple trust and obedience. Mary, chosen by God, filled with the Spirit, humbly abiding in the words spoken over her, becomes the descendant of Eve, through whom the seed of humanity's salvation would finally bloom. The child, the son, who will be named Jesus, the one who will later be called the Christ or the Messiah. But even then, even then, both Mary and her husband Joseph cannot fully conceive of what child is this, of whom they were bringing into the world. Not just any human being, but the Word of God made flesh, our Creator, incarnate in our humanity, doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves, living apart from Him. 
Living apart from him, God comes down to live with us. Live the life we were meant to live. Live the life we were meant to live. But we cannot because of our brokenness and sin. And we can and do confess this, right? God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God here is here with us and for us. We can and do confess this, but even still, from our vantage point, more than 20 centuries later, we continue to wrestle with fully comprehending who Jesus is. We wrestle with appreciating that his humble birth at Bethlehem, those silent years in Nazareth, the trials and tribulations of the Judean wilderness, the accusations and skepticism of journeying throughout Galilee, the darkness of Gethsemane, the opposition in Jerusalem, the betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter, the abandonment of his disciples, the contempt and injustice of the religious leadership, the hand-washing and condemnation of the empire of Rome, the ridicule, abuse, torture, and death of a cross, all that was the bruising of his heel. All that was the bruising of his heel. And we may sing hallelujah and we may shout amen, but we still struggle to appreciate the divine calculus that in undeservingly yet willingly, in lovingly and forgivingly embracing and bearing all of that, the worst of who we are and the worst of what we can do as we worship ourselves, that in embracing all that, bruised though he may be, Jesus crushes the head of the serpent, rising above it all, and in so doing, replaces the nightmare of all our yesterdays with the dawn of a new day and an eternal tomorrow. Beloved, this is the good news of Christmas. Understand that in a cynical world, and gosh, more and more we're living in a cynical world, in a cynical world that remains divorced from God, Christmas is nothing more than wishful thinking. Christmas is nothing more than a naive belief, an imaginative fantasy that we might indulge for the sake of nostalgia. And for many of us, that's all Christmas is, is this one big grand indulgement in nostalgia, trying to return back to capture our lost, forgotten childhood. Instead of being childlike at Christmas, many of us are childish. This isn't the way Christmas is supposed to be. This is how Christmas was when I was raised. They don't celebrate Christmas right anymore. Childish. Rather than recognizing in a childlike way, still getting your mind and heart blown open at what exactly are we celebrating but when we view Christmas in this way as just wishful thinking, a naive belief, an imaginative fantasy, nostalgia that we return to, viewed in this way, Christmas, as we all know, becomes little more than a season, right? It's just a season. It's just a temporary break from the nightmare. It's just a couple of weeks off from the rat race, the daily grind, the vicious cycle, the survival of the fittest. Beloved, it's only when we come home for Christmas, back to the heart of our relationship with God, that we realize Christmas is so much more. Initially, Genesis chapter 3 does not appear to be good news. At first, what happens sounds quite dark. Nothing like what we envision as being Christmas. But as we've discovered, the very reason for Christmas, why we need it, 
And why we have something so amazing to celebrate begins here. For it is here we first see and we can first believe that out of the darkest of situations, our most terrifying nightmares, even of our own making, God can and God will bring the light. The light the darkness cannot overcome. Again and again, we see it repeated, what happens here. Christmas reverberating throughout the, the scriptures. In the aftermath of humanity's worst, worst, again and again, God promises us the best possible gift delivered at the best possible time. Again, that light that overcomes darkness once and for all in Jesus Christ. My friends, waking up to new birth is what Christmas is all about. Not just celebrating the birth of Christ way back when, but acknowledging and making room and marveling at the birth of Christ, the birth of Christ in and through us, through the same power of the Spirit that came upon Mary. Because the seed of that promise that we looked at in Genesis chapter 3, the seed of that promise first given to Eve anticipates, in fact, not only the birth of an individual, but the birth of a people, a new humanity, all who are in Christ. And a new humanity, and that's what you are, that's what we are, a new humanity in following Jesus, purposes to celebrate Christmas, not as a time of year, but as a way of life. So for all of you who wistfully go, why can't Christmas be every day of the year? It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. Living the Christmas story, though, living it, means we have to stop settling for the nightmare before Christmas. Settling for it by denying it exists. Settling for it by convincing ourselves that's just the way it is. Living the Christmas story means we no longer try to hide our worries and our fears behind all the twinkling lights, the sugary sweets, and fake smiles. It means no longer trying to cover our feelings of regret, our feelings of grief, our feelings of guilt for what's missing in our lives by making merry and getting drunk on holiday cheer. By putting ourselves further in debt through buying and exchanging elaborate, unneeded gifts we cannot afford. Living the Christmas story looks like going beyond just observing a season of time that we make happen. And instead, by faith, daily, coming as we are, naked and unafraid, and following the voice that beckons us out of the darkness and being covered once again by the promise of our Creator. The promise that God's impulse to forgive us, God's impulse to save us, is greater than our disobedience that leads us to separate from Him. Living the Christmas story looks like translating and embodying all those songs we love to sing. And all those holiday greetings we convey, translating and embodying all those things we do in the name of Jesus for a month's time into a daily, tangible, repeated prayer, word, acts of compassion and generosity that we share with each other, particularly those in need, without expiration after December 25th. Beloved, let us come home for Christmas. Let us come home. 
Let us come home by opening our hearts even as we open our arms, our homes, our lives to embrace the birth of Christ anew. Where? To embrace the birth of Christ anew in that forgotten friend. To embrace the birth of Christ anew in that estranged family member. To embrace the birth of Christ anew in that unknown neighbor. To embrace the birth of Christ anew in that talkative co-worker who drives you up a wall. To embrace the birth of Christ anew even in the face of a complete stranger that ends up right in front of us. For what we claim at Christmas is so much more than fanciful nostalgia or mythical sentiment. Together at Christmas, what we receive and share are all of humanity's hopes and dreams made flesh, made concrete, made real in the God who comes down to be with and for us in Jesus Christ. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.